0: Well, welcome to week number four of and the Gospel, and I, I hope that uh, you've been enjoying this series as much as I have. It's It's been fun to, to dig a little bit into this rock and roll history, but at the same time dig into these essential truths of Scripture. Now, we've uh, been all the way back to the late 1960s, we jumped forward to the 2020s, and then back to the 1970s, and With this week's message, we jump forward to the mid-90s, and a song that was a huge one-hit wonder. But the song and the album it comes from uh, were both nominated for multiple Grammys, including Album of the Year as well as Song of the Year. But to fully appreciate the origins of this song, you've got to go all the way back to the early 80s, to a a team of studio musicians named Eric, Rob, and Rick. And they were, were writing and performing on Cindy Lopper's debut album, She's So Unusual. And uh, led by her catchy anthem, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, that album was such a big hit that Eric and Rob were able to parlay that success to score a record deal for their own band, the Hooters. Now, the Hooters had a couple of their own hits in the mid-80s. Now, the Eric of that team was multi-instrumentalist Eric Bazilian. Eric came from a Jewish heritage. He was raised in the Jewish faith, but as he grew, he left that faith behind. However, he could never fully escape the ideas of faith. They haunted his imagination and continually creeped into his songwriting. I even remember as a teenager at church camp, you know, hearing these rumors about how the Hooters were a Christian band. However, Eric Bazilian didn't have that kind of faith. What he had were questions, and it was the faith of his youth that became the vocabulary that he used to ask those questions. Now, fast forward to 1995. Eric, Rob, and Rick are working with yet another talented young singer on her major label debut. And they were writing and playing and producing her songs. Well, one night, Eric had a date over to his place Uh, They were going to watch a documentary on the recording of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's album. Well, his date was fascinated by the recording process. And seeing that Eric had a home recording studio, she asked him to write a song for her. And this kind of threw Eric for a loop because he and Rob were known to take a long time to write a song but he also wanted to impress the girl right every guy understands that pressure so eric sits down at his keyboard he turned on his four track recorder and he began to play and he wrote this song in one night and since he was doing this all off the top of his head um he drew on the ideas that were in the bottom of his heart And it must have worked because Eric married her and and now they've got what a couple of children together. Well, the next day after recording this demo, he plays the song for uh, Rob and Rick as they're in the studio working on this debut album. Now, Rick immediately saw the potential and asked their young singer, Joan Osborne, if she could sing the song. Now, He didn't ask her If she wanted to, because there was a fear that, well, she would say no. So he presented it as a challenge. Well, of course, she could sing the song. And she proceeded to record a a live demo with Eric playing the guitar. And Eric says that later when he popped the cassette into his car stereo, he immediately, quote, started practicing the Grammy speech he should have been able to give, end quote. It was released as the first single off of Joan Osborne's album, and it became a worldwide smash. Hitting number one in countries around the world, number four here in the U.S., VH1 ranked it as number 54 in their 100 Greatest Songs of the 90s. But this song asks what may be the greatest of all spiritual questions ever asked. A question that gets to the very heart of the gospel. What if God was one of us? Check it out. What if God was just an ordinary person? What if God had to experience all of the things in life we experience? And if we knew that that person was God, what would that mean for us? How would it change our lives? What difference would it make? How would we be different? And what really sticks out to me about the lyrics of this song are these questions come from a a heart and mind of a man who descended from the Jewish faith, a faith that he rejected, a faith that teaches that one day God would indeed become one of us, and yet a faith that ultimately refused to accept that God did indeed become one of us through Jesus. Now, this brings us to the heart of the gospel, the very heart of Christianity, the fact that God did become one of us. Now, the theological term for this is the incarnation. Incarnation comes from a Latin term, incarnate, which means into flesh. God put himself into flesh and there is no gospel. There's no good news without the incarnation, that without God being one of us. So let me build up this idea of the incarnation one piece at a time. And the first piece is this. Jesus was God. Jesus was God. Jesus was not just a man who found God, who was found by God, or who became like God. He was, in his very nature, divine, of the same essence as God. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't merely a moral person. He was more than enlightened. Jesus was God. Jesus could not go around doing the sorts of things that he did and and the miracles and, and, and making the sort of claims that he made and merely... Just be a good teacher, a a moral philosopher, or a man who had ascended to some higher level of existence, He had to be what he claimed to be, or he was a a liar of the worst kind, or a lunatic worthy of nothing more than an asylum. Now, this is an argument for the divinity of Jesus that C.S. Lewis called the trilemma. Right, instead of a dilemma where you have to choose between two things, it's a, a trilemma where you have three choices Lord, liar, and lunatic. Now, I was going to use a C.S. Lewis quote here, but since this is a rock and roll based series, I'm going to let a rock star present this argument. This is Bono of YouTube being interviewed by a guy who's not a believer. And listen to what Bono says here, and listen to how the interviewer understands perfectly well what the logical implications are. Jesus is divine. It is with this essential truth that the Apostle John begins his historical account of the life of Jesus in one of the most theologically and philosophically profound statements Ever put on paper. John 1, 1 through 1-5 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, word here is the Greek word logos, and John is telling us volumes in just a few sentences here. In talking about the logos, John is unloading barrels of truth about who this word is, this logos, and the relationship with God. See, logos was such a a deep, rich, and loaded term. And anyone reading this fresh in the first century would have connected this with several really big ideas. Now, in English, we simply translate logos as word, so much more, right? Lagos was a, a concept, an idea, and there's no word in English to sufficiently express the weight and, and fullness of Lagos, right? Whole books have been written to express the meaning of this one word. At its most basic level, Lagos meant reasoned or intelligent speech. It is the ability to articulate with clarity and with reason. It is the orderly linking and knitting together of the thoughts and feelings of the mind and, and to express those. Now for Jews, Lagos meant God in action, right? Because God's word is powerful and effective. What God says is as good as done. All right, so the word of God is really the same as the work of God. Psalm 33 6 captures this perfectly. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. All right. Now when that was translated into Greek, it's by the logos of the Lord were the heavens made. All right, God's word is money in the bank. And the Lagos of God became so closely associated with God that, that Jewish scholars began using it as a divine title, right? Centuries of war and oppression had scattered much of the Jewish population throughout the Greek and Roman world, and so no longer speaking Hebrew as their native language, they were speaking Greek, and they began using Lagos as a name for God, as the name for God. Instead of Yahweh, right? So the Word of God was God, right? So when John opens his gospel, talking about Jesus and calling him the Word, right, that says a lot to his Jewish readers. Now, among the Greeks, the idea of the Logos took a more philosophical bent. Logos was the guiding force that made sure that history was flowing in the right direction. Right? History wasn't random chance or chaos, but rather there was something that guided it along. And the Logos formed the pattern that guided everything. The Logos was the eternal principle of order in the universe. So imagine what his Greek readers and Roman readers heard when he calls Jesus the word, the Logos. What John is doing here in his introduction is to say, I know who the Logos is, right? The Logos is with God. The Logos is God. The Logos is eternal. The Logos is creator. And the Logos is Jesus. And John is setting up the essential truth that that Jesus is, Is the divine Son of God, that Jesus is eternally one with his Father, that Jesus was integral in in creating the cosmos and he reigns over his creation because Jesus was already there in the beginning. He was with God, Jesus was God. All right, after these opening verses, the Apostle John introduces John the Baptist and these themes of light and darkness. Right, and these parallel themes will run throughout the gospel and play a prominent role in his account. But down in verse 14, John returns to this idea of the Logos, where he then makes the most astounding claim the word, the Logos, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John's saying, I'm an eyewitness of this. I've seen it with my own eyes. This word become flesh, This is the incarnation he's talking about. The Logos puts on skin, takes on human flesh, a, a human heart pumping in his chest, blood flowing through his veins, infinite wisdom confined to the folds of a human brain, and he becomes one of us. And this wasn't just like a star cameo in a movie that passes in just a couple of seconds. No, the Logos completely entered into our world and experienced all of it as one of us. John 1.14, translated literally, says this, The Word became flesh, And set up his tent among us. Jesus moved in next door. He became our neighbor. He goes from living in a heavenly palace with all of his royal privilege and honor and the the worship of innumerable angels to living in a tent with the peasants. He goes from having the entire cosmos as his backyard to this small bit of, of flesh and bone stuck on this rock floating in space and calling it home. In flesh, Jesus got hungry. Right In Matthew 21, Jesus is hungry. He goes to a fig tree to get something to eat, and, and there's no figs on it. And he turns it into an object lesson. Right? Jesus got thirsty. In John 4, Jesus has been journeying all morning long, and he sits down next to a well under the heat of the midday sun. He asks for a, a woman for a drink but he ends up giving her the water of life. He got tired, right? He took a nap in the bottom of a fishing boat while this wild storm is raging outside and had the disciples scared for their lives, Jesus as a man, right? He knew anxiety to the point of sweating drops of blood as he wrestled in prayer over his coming death, right? This is a, a physical phenomenon that is known to medical science. Jesus knew loss, right? We have no accounts of Joseph beyond Jesus' early childhood. Uh, Every indication is that Joseph had died. That's why when Jesus dies, he entrusts the care of Mary to John. Jesus knew grief. He wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus, even Though in just minutes, he would raise him from the dead. He knew that grief and he wept, right? Here's what you need to know. Whatever you're going through, whatever you've experienced, Jesus understands that. He's been there. He gets you. You've probably seen some ads on TV or online from an organization called He Gets Us, right? They had a a big Super Bowl ad. Right and these ads present Jesus as somebody who who gets us who understands us no matter who we are no matter what we're going through. And the biblical book of Hebrews makes this very same point. In Hebrews 2:11 it says that Jesus and us are of the same family and that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Later on in verse 14 it explains why, quote, since the children have flesh and blood he too shared in their humanity. So the incarnation, God becoming one of us, it's it's the most incredible event in all of human history. It's why we celebrate Christmas. It's greater than the discovery of fire, the invention of the wheel, the steam engine, man flight, the radio, the transistor, the microprocessor. You put it all together. It's greater than all of that the eternal, all-powerful, ever-present, infinitely holy Son of God, put on human flesh and lived among humanity, as the song says, and he became one of us. Now, the significant thing here, though, is why? Why did Jesus do this? Why did God send Jesus and, and, and he became one of us? And the reason is this. Jesus came for us. He came for me. He came for you. He put on our skin. He lived our life because he wants to be with you. Now think of the lengths that we will go to to be with someone we love. I I slept on a far too short couch just to hang out with my daughter, Alyssa. Teresa and I once stayed up all night to see each other. Even when I had to preach the next morning, I was dragging tail the next day. We will drive for hours. We will stay up way past our bedtime. We'll stay up all night keeping watch with a loved one in the hospital. We'll fly to the other side of the world just to see our kid who's on leave for a couple of days. That's the lengths that we will go to to be with someone we love. And by sending his son, God went to the greatest possible length to be with us, to be with you. Peter Schizero in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, tells about a time that he and his wife were serving as missionaries in Costa Rica, working with university students. Now, part of being a missionary is, is totally immersing yourself in the culture to which you are showing God's love. It's not enough just to physically enter their world. You've got to become a part of their world. And in Costa Rica, the couple ate rice and beans three times a day. They only had meat once a week. And they celebrated the people's customs, and they lived like the poor people of their community. And Peter says that his wife would frequently say this, this is hard, and all I did was leave the United States. Jesus left heaven. Earth, right. That's the length he went to, to come for you. The message of Scripture, all right the good news of the gospel, is that God loves us and wants us to be with Him. Right. He sent Jesus for us. Right. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. God loved the world. He loved us romans five eight, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? And he He was crucified in a human body on a cross. And died a very physical death. Right? This means that God loves you. He sent Jesus for you. Jesus died for you, right? so that, He could be with you and you could be with him. The incarnation was driven by love. Let me close with a story. Max Licato tells a remarkable story involving the pioneering plastic surgeon, Dr. Maxwell Maltz. Now, there was a man who had gone into a burning house in order to save his parents from the fire. And though he tried, he was unable to get to them, and they perished in the flames. And it nearly cost the man his own life. As a result, he was severely burned, and his face was horribly disfigured. In his anguish, he blamed himself for his parents' loss. If only he tried harder, if only he got there quicker. And he isolated himself in depression and despondency, and he wouldn't let anyone see him, not even his wife. He refused any help or consultant, um, wouldn't talk to a plastic surgeon, didn't want their help because he believed that his pain and his disfigurement was God's punishment. Well, desperate to reach her husband, his wife went to Dr. Maltz, And after hearing her story, the surgeon assured her, I can restore his face. However, she remained unmoved. She explained that he didn't want help, that he had refused all offers for help. She knew that that he would only refuse again. So she explained why she had come. I want you to disfigure my face so that I can be like him. If I can share his pain, then maybe he will let me back into his life. Dr. Maltz was, of course, heartbroken over her plea. Medical ethics would not allow him to grant such a request and do no harm. But he was so deeply moved by her love that he went to speak with her husband. Knocking on his door, he called. I'm a plastic surgeon and I can restore your face. No response. Please come out. But again, there was no answer. And with his face pressed up against the door, he explained his wife's proposal. She wants me to disfigure her face. To make her face like yours in hope that you will let her back into your life. That's how much she loves you. And there was a brief moment of silence. And then, ever so slowly, the door began to open. That's how that wife loved her husband. And that's the same way that God loves you so how about you will you open the door